Yeah, so I'm so thankful to be here with you today. Um, when Annie asked me a few weeks ago to fill in, I was happy, maybe a little crazy, <laughs> to do it. Um, and so, but I just started to think about, you know, um, you know, this is can be a pretty weighty night for a lot of people. Um, I mean, we won't, you know, necessarily have answers tonight, but just a lot of buildup, I think, and over you know, the months of a pretty polarizing election season over, you know, just a tremendous year of brokenness and suffering. And and so I have just been praying that the Lord meets you where you are tonight um, and that, you know, looking at the person of Jesus gives you the breath of fresh air that you need tonight. Um, Actually, tonight I would like to start off reading some scripture other than our text. Uh, Anthony shared it on Sunday, and then also I was listening to a podcast yesterday, and they shared the same verse too, and I thought, you know what, it's just so poignant to read again, and I think it fits nicely with our passage today too. Um, So just kind of looking at our passage in light of this one here, um, it's Isaiah 9, and I'll read a few verses from it. Um, It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And that's Isaiah 9, um, verse 2 and 6 through 7. In studying these passages of Mark um, that we'll be looking at today, one Mark Strauss, who's the commentator that I've been reading, He identifies these passages as the inauguration of Jesus or the inauguration of the kingdom of God. How appropriate for a day like today um, to remember that Jesus holds all things together. That's said in Colossians 1.17. And the government is on his shoulders. I think we just read. The kingdom of God is reigning right here, right now. So with that being said, let's look into our passage starting with Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. And how I'm going to kind of structure the teaching is I'm going to read the rest of Mark 4 and then talk about um, the person of Jesus and then some application and then go into Mark 5 and then repeat the pattern. So the person of Jesus and then kind of application. So Mark 5. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So leading up to this point in Mark, Jesus had performed some healings, some exorcisms, and had done quite a bit of teaching and gathering followers. After teaching for the day, he and his disciples gathered in the boat and head off to their next destination. This passage, I think, really reads like a movie. Um, Mm -hmm. And both both of these passages that we read are full of details. Um, Maybe it's the amount of times I've read the passage, or maybe it's the amount of times I've seen the Titanic. (laughs) But I can see the waves crashing onto the boat, rocking and filling it with water. I can even imagine the faces of the disciples and their worried, harried faces frantic. Honestly, I've probably seen those faces in the mirror a couple of times. <laughs> so much chaos, and then the shot cuts to Jesus, sleeping on a cushion, peacefully trusting his father in the midst of the roaring sea of Galilee. The disciples waken out of their worry and frustration. Don't you care if we drown? And mercifully, Jesus waits and rebukes the wind and the waves, and at the word of Jesus, the storm ceases. This is the first nature miracle in the Gospel of Mark and shows how Jesus exercises authority not just over men, but truly is ruler of all nature. The language that Jesus uses suggests that his command over the storm was almost like an exorcism, um, as the word rebuke is used in other passages, in the passages before in Mark. Um, and so this kind of also suggests that um, that there's a larger force at hand in the world, that sin permeates everything. And Jesus um, rebuking the wind and the waves uh, exhibits that he can control it and shows to his disciples that Jesus can truly do the things only God can do. Looking back at the Old Testament, it is only God that can command nature, as seen in other passages such as Jonah 1 or Psalm 107, 23-32. So we see Jesus is pretty powerful, to say the least. We also see him first sleeping on a pillow in the midst of chaos. He's at perfect peace. He then kindly awakes, it sounds like, and does the thing to see. And then he asks a very kind question. Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? Even though his disciples accuse him of not even caring about him, he still engages with them and ask that heartfelt question. This is the God we follow and put our hope in, one who engages with us. Even when we shake him awake with our worry, he doesn't just calm the storm and go back to bed. He meets his friends where they are. So now let's look, we looked at the person of Jesus and how he um, acts in this and what that tells us about him. Now let's look at the disciples. Uh, truthfully, it's hard not for me to relate to the disciples. I mean, don't we all feel like we're in a storm right now? <laughs> uh, the storm of COVID-19, the storm of racial injustice, um, mental health crises, anxiety, addiction, family conflict, job insecurity, polarizing politics. Oh, my heart is <laughs> getting touched just talking about it. I hope I didn't do that to you. <laughs> too, but... It's easy to look at the intensity of the storm and then translate it to, if Jesus can calm the storm, he can calm the storms in our lives and in our hearts. And that's truth. Jesus can do those things. 
But notice Jesus didn't thank the disciples for alarming him of the storm after he calmed it. He questioned what they feared and where their faith was. This caused the disciples to question too. As much as I like to imagine, and I think most of the time when I've read this before, I imagine the disciples being like, yeah, like that was great. Like, thanks Jesus. Like, you did it. And are like perfectly calm and everyone goes back to bed or something. Um, You know, they were actually filled with great fear. uh, An awe-inspiring fear. Um, And St. Clair Ferguson adds, the stilling of the natural storm raised a spiritual storm in the disciples' hearts. How often sometimes does everything kind of, the dust settles and something's going on inside of us? And I think, you know, they were confronted with the question of who Jesus really is. And discovering who he was produced that awe-inspiring fear and a decision. Will I fear the creation and the trials of this world? Hmm. Or will I fear the one who seems to have sovereignty over it all? The question isn't quite, will I choose faith over fear? But will I fear God over all other things? The right fear leads us to faith. Which reminds me of um, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In her article, Treating Fear for Fear, Christina Fox describes two types of fears. Um, Fear and then a holy fear. Fear is more so um, that desire to control the world around us and kind of those fight or flight responses or freeze. Um and the worry of losing what's most important to us. And I think that's what was going on for the disciples when they woke Jesus up. Uh, The other fear she describes is a holy fear, and that's the fear of God, which she says can stand up to all our other fears. Proverbs 9 and 10, or not 9 10, 14 26 says it well, whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and their children, and for their children, it will be a refuge. And then Proverbs nineteen twenty three, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it rests satisfied. This doesn't mean that holy fear makes us comfortable all the time. Um, this very account shares the opposite. But fall, and following Jesus can be dangerous. But this holy fear is like a refuge, a place to hide in the midst of trials and marvel at the work of God. The description of who Jesus is and the question of which fear to fear continues on the shore where Jesus lands next. Mark 5, 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes. And when Jesus stepped off the boat, out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him up anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs, on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have, you to do, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he was saying to him, for Jesus was saying to him, 
Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down to the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was and what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has shown mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim it in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So looking first at how Mark describes Jesus in this passage, it's hard not to do so without first describing the man who Jesus interacts with. And thankfully, Mark provides that. Uh, The first five verses are all dedicated to describing this man. Um, He had an unclean spirit, a demon-possessed man, spent most of his time living in the tombs. The townspeople had tried to bind him up with chains and were unsuccessful. And he also spent all night crying and cutting himself with rocks. This man is clearly hurting, clearly an outcast, deemed unclean. And we see Jesus approaching him when no one else would. You know, I, I love this message, and I think, you know, it's probably not just her who says it, but uh, Anne Voskamp, she writes something like, we can expect to find Jesus where we least expect him. Mm-hmm. And I think this kind of highlights that. Um, but, so, you know, Mark is highlighting that Jesus approaches the lost and isolated and care and deeply cares about them. Um, Mark em- also emphasizes again Jesus's power as he perm- permits the demons inside the man to move to another home. And then also, you know, this highlights, I mean, this highlights a lot of things, but it also talks about the reality of spiritual warfare. Um, that is, Paul says in Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh or blood. When the demon-possessed man actually introduces himself, it's as legion. And this term is usually used in the Roman military and suggests an army of 5,600 soldiers. Hmm. So it could be insinuating that there are 5,600 demons in this man. Um, And honestly, while studying this passage, I really can't quite comprehend that. Like, that's Hmm. a lot and kind of chilling to think about. Um, however, the demons know who to fear. <laughs> they, you know, cause the man to run towards Jesus. And they even call Jesus son of the most high God. They know who Jesus is. And they actually have 
some of what would be called the right kind of fear. Um, let me see, where's my place here? <laughs> um, and also, uh, another point, I was listening to um, John Piper talk about, you know, why would, why would Jesus let the demons go into the pigs? And why would the demons ask to go into the pigs? And it was interesting, um, what he pointed out was the demons didn't know what was going to happen when they go into the pigs. But Jesus did. And that's what is kind of um, emphasized in this, is that Jesus knew what would happen to the demons, and that's why he permitted them to go into the pigs. Um, so now we look at like how Jesus is, all, like in some ways, well, he is all-knowing, um, from knowing what would happen to the demons if they went into the pigs. We see um, that he goes to the lost, the outcast, um, the people who seem unreachable. And then also we see his incredible power in commanding 5,600 demons to go into 200 pigs. Um, So let's see what fear does what here. Um, The man cries out to Jesus when he sees him ashore and runs towards him. Like I said, he says, what do you have to do with me? Do not torture me, O son of the most high God. Um, And it's unclear um, who has complete control here, either the man or the demon, demons. Um, But it seems like they have the the fear of God in them, in him. And this caused a closeness to Jesus in some way, um, which I thought was interesting. Um, that and then that the closeness to Jesus led to this man being healed and being in right mind, and also then begging Jesus to allow him to travel with him. So that's what kind of um, the fear of God did there. Um, but looking at the other characters in the story, that's not really what was going on for them. They had a different kind of fear. Uh, the herdsmen run and tell the townspeople. The townspeople come and see what happened, and they were afraid and begged Jesus to leave. When I first read this, I was like, why are they begging Jesus to leave? Like, he's obviously really cool. Like, he just did that whole thing with pigs. And, but then, <laughs> looking into it, um, 2,000 pigs is a lot of pigs, and that was actually a lot of their wealth as their region. And I didn't quite think about that before, that this was their livelihood. And the fact that Jesus just sent them to drown was incredibly terrifying. Additionally, it's possible that their herd of pigs uh, helped the Roman army, which then losing 2,000 pigs wouldn't just hurt their town financially, but politically. Um, The demon-possessed man, although he was a nuisance, was actually much more tolerable than for them to lose their livelihood. Mm -hmm. This fear clouds their minds and inhibits them from seeing the miracles in front of them and being able to marvel at the work of Jesus. The demon-possessed man in his right mind is the first miracle. He couldn't be bound by shackles or chains and was sitting in his right mind. And also, too, that the man in front of them had the power to free this man from the legion that was in him. Instead of marveling, they were crying for him to leave. It seems incomprehensible that they would beg that. Um, 
from what we know of Jesus sitting here. But when I take a closer look at myself, Hmm. uh, I definitely can see that in myself. Um, Sometimes, um, you know, I can see myself in the townspeople and the disciples in the storm, uh, as I often grip onto wealth, health, and comfort instead of leaning into the goodness and sovereignty of Jesus, who is the kind of God who would risk a whole region's wealth and comfort for the sake of one man who was enslaved and isolated. I think St. Clair Ferguson asked a good question. That got me pretty good, too. Um, you know, did these townspeople fear Jesus' continued presence with them because they suspected it might produce a similar transformation in them, like the demon-possessed man? And so that kind of made me also think sometimes, you know, fearing transformation, you know. And so we have all these different kinds of fears that we fear, you know, fear of losing wealth, fear of losing health, fear of losing, you know, fear of losing our comfort. I think that's kind of what's in, like, I think that's probably the main thing most of the time. And I think, you know, Looking at this whole past year and seeing a lot of, you know, seeing a lot of reactions of people, I think most of it comes down to fear and what people are fearing. Um, you know, there, in just, um, according to the National Alliance of Mental Health, 18% of the population suffers from anxiety disorders and 35% of the population experience anxiety disorders. And then additionally, the American Institute of Stress cites that 77% of the population experience physical symptoms of stress, um, and 33% report living in extreme stress. Uh, these statistics were taken from 2019, so can't imagine like what's changed there. Um, but I think you know these passages give us like a unique perspective and a springboard. To examine what what are we fearing? You know, are we are we in the boat and fearing our health or feeling fearing you know our lives? What will happen? Um, are we like the townspeople and fearing losing wealth and comfort and worried about what would happen if Jesus transformed me? What would that look like? Mm-hmm. When Jesus gives us that refuge. Um, and fearing him, that awe-inspiring fear, um, can give us so much peace. So I think, you know, a lot of the questions here, um, I, I mean, and honestly, like, I was just confronted with this just the other day as I, was, I struggle with anxiety myself and can, and can have panic attacks. And last week, I was really struggling with one. And, you know, it didn't even cross my mind. Like, what am I really afraid here? You know, it just, it happens so quickly. And, you know, and I think that happens to a lot of people. We just, we don't, we're not really aware of what we're afraid of. And so I think, you know, um, I think this text gives us a nice springboard to think about, you know, what, you know, what am I fearing besides God? Um. So again, I don't know, or, and I'm sorry to pause because I just want to pause and go back to this one point um, because I think you know what really helps us with those fears 
is looking at the person of Jesus and recognizing that he is the one that's in control. In both of these stories, you know, um, we see he's ruler of all nature. Um, He has power over all physical and spiritual realms. And so we can rest in him and rest in that he has that power. And that's, um, you know, that's what's true. So I don't know where you are today, um, but if you find yourself having some tightness in your chest over the election or clenching your fists over your finances or spinning around anything, you know, I think it's important to take a breath of fresh air and look at the person of Jesus. Um, He's the refuge in the storm. He's the one who engages with those who shake him and ask him over and over again, why is this still happening? It's not supposed to be this way. He engages and asks those sweet questions. What are you afraid of? And come to me. So um, to leave you with one verse tonight, um, you know, I think to leave you with something, um, think looking at your fear and trading your fear of man in the world for the awe-inspiring, marveling fear that leads to peace and trusting in God. He will keep him in perfect peace who keeps his eye on you because he trusts in you. That's from Isaiah 26. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord God, um, I just thank you so much that you are the God who is sovereign over everything. And you are the God who knows uh, each one of our fears and worries very personally. And you understand them. And Lord, I thank you that you, um, you engage with them. And you tell us um, that we can come to you and that you can be our refuge. Um, Lord, I pray for all the women tonight and for the women who aren't here. Um, I pray that in the moments of whatever comes in this week, that any fear that comes their way, that they would um, trade their fear um, and look to you and, you know, remember that you are the God who is worth fearing. You are the one who has control over everything. And so, God, I just thank you so much for tonight, and I pray for our time in small groups. I pray that you bless it, and I pray um, that you just give comfort and peace to these women tonight. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.